uh, we just once more commit this time to, to the Lord. Father, we do pray that you would speak to us now. We pray for your Holy Spirit to come upon every one of us. And for those who hear it uh, online afterwards, would you speak through your word by your spirit? Lord, I'm very conscious that I can deliver up some words, but Lord, with your anointing, they are more than words, they are life itself. And we, we ask that you would move powerfully and mightily uh, through this time. Please open your word to us uh, for your glory and for our edification. Amen. Well, if you recall, we started last time uh, when I was speaking in the book of 1 Peter. So please turn there because you'll be needing that. We're still in chapter one, but we'll be finishing the chapter today. Um, and I've been blessed actually so far seeing how, whether it be songs or things people have said, have just sort of fitted in with, with the passage that we're looking at today. So uh, thank you for those who've brought them. Uh, it just shows the, the glorious picture that God uh, puts together when, when his spirit is at work. And that's, that's so encouraging. Last time when we started, we saw some of the, the wonderful aspects of our salvation. We saw how our inheritance in Christ is incorruptible. It's undefiled. It's such good, brilliant news. We saw how our inheritance is reserved in heaven for us. Isn't that great that, that we've got a reservation there? Uh, and we, we do bless, bless God for that. But I think it's so good to be able to ponder some of these many blessings that we have as Christians because our lives have been transformed by God and actually that should cause us to rejoice in God daily. Today we're moving on to the natural outcome of that. Uh, Peter starts this section with the word therefore and as Simon pushed out earlier when you see the word therefore you need to see what it is therefore. Um, and he shows that in the light of what we saw last time, we should do certain things. And uh, one of the things that we're going to see is, is the, the wonder of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. So I've, I've entitled this talk, Our Perfect Redeemer, because he is so wonderfully perfect. And what Peter's going to do, he's going to establish something based on the previous verses. And he'll be speaking about our Redeemer. He'll be talking about walking in holiness and how we respond to God in that way. So let's kick it off with verses 13 to 16. Therefore, gird up your, the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And in the passage that we're looking at today, Peter touches on three things to which believers must conform. First, there's God the Father. Second, there's the redemption. And third, there's love. <clears throat> and in verses 13 to 16 that we've just read, he deals with the first of these, and that's God the Father, and specifically how we're going to respond to him, how we should respond to him, and that comes in the latter part of those three verses. Um, 
And he starts by telling his readers to gird up the loins of their mind. It's not an expression we use very often these days, to gird up your loins. But when Peter was alive, it was typical for a man to wear long flowing garments, which looked great. But if uh, these sort of garments, the flowing material, made it difficult to do anything that was active, whether it was running or, or, or anything involving action. So what the man would do would be to tuck the robes into his belt so that he would be free to run. And that was called girding up his loins. And but what Peter says to us here is not so much that we, we reorganize our clothes, but it's to gird up the loins of your mind. Um, in other words, he's uh, urging us to be ready for action mentally. Um, and we might use the expression today of some, telling someone to roll their sleeves up, uh, to be unencumbered and therefore ready for action. And in short, he's telling his readers to have a disciplined mind. And in Christian discipleship, there is no place for mental slackness. There's no place for loose thinking. There's no place for being scatterbrained in matters of our faith. We are to be unencumbered in our minds, mentally and spiritually action, ready for action at all times. We have been rescued from the world and its anti-God philosophies. And our focus should be on our obedience to God and to his word, rather than the thinking that we had before we became Christians. Now, back in the Garden of Eden, Satan seduced Eve into disbelieving God attacking her mind by casting doubt on God's good promises and God's good intentions. And ever since she and Adam succumbed to those lies, there has been a battle raging for people's minds. And frankly, there's no neutral position. We're either on God's side or that of the enemy. And if we're not ready and willing to fight on God's side, then we will hinder those who are. So it's crucial that we are to be disciplined in our thinking in a godly way. It's not an optional extra. It's what we must do as Christian disciples. And then Peter tells us in verse 13 to be sober. He's not referring to alcohol, although it should go without saying that the Bible tells us not to get drunk. And there's no days off in that regard. It's, that's a, an everyday thing. He's talking about being sober minded, very much tied up with the, the girding up the loins of your mind. Uh, one commentator defines this as being saying it denotes a condition free from every form of mental and spiritual loss of self-control. It's an attitude of self-discipline that avoids the extremes. I guess it means to be calm, steady, controlled, able to weigh matters. In other words, we'll be well balanced and not thrown off track easily. We must grasp the fact that if we're not disciplined and sober-minded in our thinking, then the enemy will cr create havoc with our thought life. It's not unlike what Paul said at the beginning of Romans 12, which Simon uh, brought out earlier. Although Simon mentioned verse 1, I'm going to pick up verse 2. Uh, Paul had spent 11 chapters setting out the glory of God's purposes for his people. And how wonderful our salvation is. And it really is wonderful. And he then went on, went on to say in, in 12 verses, verse 2, 
And do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We're told to renew our minds, uh, to change our thinking so that it conforms to God's will and God's word, rather than the way of the world. And as we change our minds in this way, God will change our heart, and only he can change a person's heart. And the next part of Peter's instruction is the second half of verse 13. Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think that's a lovely expression, rest your hope fully on it. I think the, one of the glorious things about God's grace towards us is it's, it's, it's progressive. We needed it to be saved. We needed God's grace um, when we became Christians. Without God's grace, we wouldn't be saved. But we also need it today so that we live in the fullness of his grace. It's an ongoing thing. And if you're not living in God's grace today, you're depriving yourself of what God wants to give you. But also we need it for the future. When Jesus comes for us, his grace will be brought with him. Uh, and it's by his grace that we'll be taken to be with him uh, in the place he's been preparing for us. But we can rest our hope fully on this grace. There is nothing we can do to deserve it because it wouldn't be grace otherwise. But we can place our whole weight for all time upon the sure promises of God. His word is so reliable. God's character is so reliable. And that's in stark contrast to the passing fragility of the world that is daily shaken and uncertain. And we see the uncertainty of the world more and more as the days go by. <coughs> and for the Jewish Christians that Peter was writing to, they would have felt like temporary residents where they'd been scattered to because they'd been scattered away from Jerusalem. And so the passing nature of how Peter addressed them uh, back in verse one as pilgrims or sojourners would have really resonated with them here. What Peter's saying in verse 13 here is that we are to be disciplined, sober-minded and trusting in God's grace as we look forward to the time when Jesus comes for his church. And that's sometimes called our blessed hope. And it really is a blessed hope. We are to live in the light of his coming for us. And as we look at the world events through the lens of scripture, it does seem that this coming for us can't be far away. No wonder we shouldn't be distracted by worldly thinking, which is becoming more, God, more openly godless almost by the day. Jesus is coming. And for believers, for us as believers, that is the best news possible. But it reminds us too that for unbelievers, it's not good news because there will be judgment for them. And that should stir us on to have compassion and pray and witness. <clears throat> Let's move on to verses 14 to 16, where we find that Peter tells us to be obedient children. And uh, being children, uh, that means we have a father. And I've just realized I haven't put in my notes. Um, what verses 14 to 16 actually say? So forgive me, that's reading. Oh no, halfway, I've already dealt with that one. Um, 
beg your pardon. But, uh, yes, we're to be obedient children. Children need a father. And in this case, our father is almighty God. A good parent will train a child to be obedient and well-behaved, learning to reject that which is wrong and harmful. And God calls us to be obedient to him and to reject, and yes, it means reject, the former lusts, the ways of the world that we used to be involved in before we became Christians. Unsaved people lack spiritual understanding, and Peter, here in verse 14, describes that as ignorance. But as believers with God's word and with his Holy Spirit living within us, we are called to be different, to have our worldview transformed and moulded by God's word. Our Father also is holy, and he calls us to be holy. And this is the, where that first theme of our, our response to God comes in. He calls us to be holy, and we should be holy, because he is holy. And whilst the, the word holy involves purity, it involves being untainted, it also means to be set apart, to be different. And God is infinitely pure. He, there's nothing tainted about God whatsoever. But he's also uniquely different. He's what the theologians call other, because no one can be like God. No one can attain his burning purity. He is unique. But hallelujah, we are cleansed and we are made new creatures in Christ as we're born again. But then the outflow from what Peter has been talking about is that we reject that which is sinful and then positively we live for God. We are to be different, to be set apart from the world and set apart unto God. And God's holiness is an essential part of his nature. But then the good news for us is that we are given a new nature when we're born again so that we can live in relationship with God. But we must mould our thinking and our behaviour to conform to his will. And that involves every aspect of our lives. Every day with no days off because discipleship is a 24-7, 365 day a year uh, thing. And if it's a leap year, it's 365, 366 days. You don't get a day off in a leap year either. It's a change in one's life uh, to that which is Christ-centered. Uh, that's expected of those who come to Christ. If we claim to be Jesus' disciples, then he must be central to our lives. And the word for, that Peter uses for conduct gives the sense of a change of one's outward behavior based upon one's inner beliefs. I think that gives a good flavor. We know what we believe, and that should change how we behave. And then the second thing that Peter discusses in this section is our redemption, verses 17 to 21. And here I think this is a glorious passage talking about Jesus, our perfect redeemer. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold. From your, from, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, 
but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter starts here by saying, um, and if you call on the Father, and he's assuming, essentially, that his readers will call on the Father, because it's, it's actually, the if is a since, and since you call on him. It's not actually if, as we translate it. It's since, or because you do. And because we call on him as Father, we know that there's a relationship there with him as, as, as his children. And we can call on him throughout our time on this earth as we grow in him. And we're told here to be mindful that he judges according to each one's work. Of course, as believers, we're not judged for our sins because they've been dealt with on the cross. And we've accepted by faith that Jesus' payment with his blood is sufficient for us. But it's our works that are judged. And that affects our rewards beyond this life. But God doesn't show partiality in his judgments. And actually, the word for judgment here carries the flavor of to judge in order to find something good. But as believers, we can see that God's on our side. Uh, he doesn't pamper his children or he doesn't indulge us. But he does give us many privileges and blessings as Christians. But it, one privilege he ne doesn't give us, he never gives us the privilege to disobey him or to sin. And in view of this, the natural attitude for us to have is that we should conduct ourselves throughout our stay here or our time on this earth with fear. I think not so much fear of God our Father in the sense of terror. There should, of course, be a healthy reverence for God. But fear of the repercussions of how we live. And the word for stay really means to sojourn. It reminds us of the temporary nature of our time here on earth. And the older I get, the quicker it seems to go. Um, and I, I was saying to Francis yesterday, how is it that, that you know, we got married, we were young and we had children and here we are, we're grandparents now. Where did that happen? Um, but uh, it's brief. Certainly in, the, in comparison with eternity, it's very brief. And surely we should not want to disappoint our loving father by the way that we live. Instead, we should long for that welcome due to a good and faithful servant. And that welcome will be so precious when we hear it. And then Peter's description of our redemption in verses 18 to 19, I think is glorious. Um, now, to understand redemption, we need to understand the context. In the Roman Empire of Peter's day, there were probably some 60 million slaves. That's almost the population of the entire UK. And they could only obtain their freedom by saving enough money to buy it or to find someone who would pay the price for them. And that's what they would understand as redemption. So the concept of redemption is that someone must pay a ransom to bring about the freedom of another person. And the wonderful thing for us is that it's Jesus who has paid that ransom for us in his blood. And the tense in the Greek confirms that it's a completed work. And it's in the passive mood, and that shows that it's been done for us. It's nothing we've done ourselves. 
we couldn't pay the ransom because we were in bondage to sin. But Jesus has paid it for us. And he's the only one who is qualified to do so in God's sight. And the redemption here, or the ransom paying, it gives the idea of, of restoring something back to its rightful owner, having been rescued from an alien possessor. And man originally belonged to the Lord, but he was taken over by the works of the devil. Obviously, it happened at the fall. And he fell under the devil's control. But for those who are in Christ, we've been rescued from this alien possessor. We've been set free. We've been redeemed. And our redemption was not achieved with the payment of perishable things, such as silver or gold. Our salvation is eternal. So the solution has to be eternal. We don't want it to come to an end because the means of payment has perished. The value of Jesus' blood is also, it's eternal, but it's also never eroded by inflation or anything like that. It's everlasting. And note that Peter's readers were redeemed from their aimless conduct received by tradition from their fathers. It's almost as though they had inherited this from their fathers. And isn't that the, the aimless conduct as an inheritance is such a contrast to the rich inheritance that we have in Christ. The, the, the Jews before being saved had been steeped in religious traditions, but the believers there have been set free from those traditions by their faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. And in context, these traditions would have been a form of Phariseeism that was contained, um, sorry, it was based on the oral, oral traditions of what was called the Mishnah. And that was a collection of oral laws that supplemented what was contained in the written law of, of God as given to Moses. So the law was the first five books, Genesis to Deuteronomy, but they added extra laws. So they sort of, if you like, built a fence around the law so they wouldn't break the real law, even if they broke a few of the things around in the fence around it. But they'd added to God's word. And that's always a dangerous thing to do. And Peter described the adherence to these rules as aimless empty conduct but it's easy for us also to add to God's word it's easy to adopt religious activities and rules about how we behave as Christians but anything that adds to what Jesus has done on the cross is empty indeed actually life outside of Christ is empty and aimless and surely that remain reminds us what an amazing rescue we have in Christ an amazing redemption and of course, Peter tells us the price of our redemption. It's not silver or gold. It's the precious blood of Jesus. And it's not corruptible like silver or gold. But Jesus offered himself as a lamb without blemish and without spot. And Peter's readers would have been very familiar with the need for a sacrifice under the law of Moses to be without any blemish or spot. The lamb had to be perfect. And because God is holy, there was to be nothing with any blemishes that were to be offered to him. And Jesus, of course, was completely sinless. He was completely unblemished. So he alone could be our perfect sacrifice to redeem us. And as the Passover lambs were inspected 
in the days leading up to the Passover feast, uh, they would check the lambs for blemishes. And in the same way, Jesus was inspected by the various religious groups in the days leading up to uh, his death at Passover. He was inspected by Pilate. He was inspected by Herod. And no one could find any fault with him. Even the battle-hardened centurion at Jesus' crucifixion recognised that Jesus was and is the Son of God. And then, of course, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead confirms for us that God the Father was satisfied with the offering of his Son. So we can therefore know that our salvation in Christ is certain and perfect. Jesus really was blemish-free and proved to be blemish-free. And in the light of that, how can we slip back into carnality when we find things are tough? They are the times when we should be the most determined to follow Christ wholeheartedly. And that should flow from a daily habit of living with him and for him and getting our roots deep in him. Then in verse 20, uh, Peter tells his readers, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. In other words, Jesus' death wasn't an accident. It was an appointment ordained by God before the foundation of the world. It was an eternal reality even before it occurred on earth. God knew of the need for his redemptive program before he founded the world. And he planned it accordingly, before there were any sinners who needed to be redeemed. That's sovereignty, isn't it? And that's grace and mercy. This gives us such assurance that God planned it all so that he wasn't caught by surprise, which of course is impossible to a God who knows everything. The salvation offered by God in Christ is potentially available for everyone. And his solution is su sufficient and appropriate to deal with the problem of each man's sin. And the fact that Peter could say that Jesus was manifested in these last times, in other words, the time when Peter was alive, reinforces the purpose of God as his plan for Jesus to come as saviour of the world came to fruition. But Peter also gives us the qualification and the, the limitation, because in verse 21 he says it's only made effective in the lives of those who believe in God. All people can be saved, but only those who believe for themselves in the effective sacrifice of Jesus will be saved. It's got to be personal. And as Christians, we believe, of course, in God. We believe in Christ. We believe that God raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory. God didn't leave Jesus in the grave either, because death couldn't hold him. God raised Jesus and gave him glory. Speaking of the fact that Jesus is now ascended and glorified at the Father's right hand. The, 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 the lovely program of salvation God's given is tremendous here. And surely that gives us faith. It gives us a sure hope that we can put a whole weight on, as we saw earlier. God's dealings with mankind are fully on track. He's provided the salvation needed. And as we saw earlier, he will send his son to collect his bride at the right time. 
And that gives us such reassurance in the growing darker days that we see around us today. We get the final part of the chapter in verses 22 to 25. And then Peter in this gives his third section of teaching in today's passage, that of the believer's need to love. So let's read. Since you've pre- pre- pure since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. And here Paul, uh, sorry, Peter builds on what he's been saying. He says, since you've been purified, you have purified your souls in obeying the truth with the spirit and sincere love of the brethren and so on. There's the double aspect of purification for our souls First and foremost, we are washed by the blood of Jesus and born again. But then there's our, our response. For Peter says that we have, washed, we, have, we have purified our souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. And surely that brings us back to the sober renewing of the mind that we saw earlier. Christian discipleship is a committed, godly lifestyle style that takes God's word seriously so that it translates into action. And part of that action is found here. Love one another fervently with a pure heart. Christian unity has been attacked by the enemy for millennia, and it still is today. There have been bitter disputes between Christians and between churches, but Peter's command here is to be fervent in love for each other. That doesn't mean we compromise on the truth as it's revealed in the Bible. But if we are spirit-filled, God's love should be seen in our midst and in our attitudes. And this type of love is a powerful witness to a broken and fragmented world. But the infighting and bitterness that is all too often found does great damage to Christ's body and to the witness. The word for fervent here is an athletic term, which means striving with all of one's energy. This sort of love takes effort, but it is worth it. One of the reasons for this is given in verse 23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. I think one of the lovely things about salvation is that God doesn't merely take our unsaved sinful beings and just sort of give us some new instructions so that we're a nicer version of what we used to be. He gives us new birth. We are born again, but with incorruptible seed. Now, when we were born physically, we needed two parents. I think that's still true, despite what the world might be telling us. Um, But it was by corruptible seed so that we decay, we get sick and eventually die. We are genetically the product of our parents and they are the product of their ancestors. But when we are born again spiritually, we also have two parents, 
We have God the Father working by the Holy Spirit, and we have the Word of God. But because the Holy Spirit is divine, our new life is produced by incorruptible seed. And our physical bodies here might decay, but our renewed spirit doesn't. And in due time, God will give us resurrection bodies that will not decay, will not get sick, and will never die. But unless we're born again, we cannot be true Christians because we need this new life, born of incorruptible seed, to have an eternal relationship with God. We have a, a new father, the almighty God who reigns on high. That's a staggering privilege that we have. The God of the universe, the almighty God, who has existed from eternity past and will always exist. He is our father. And he can be trusted to look after his children. And it's, it's this new birth that will build the love and the unity in the church that Peter speaks of. And the word he uses for love here is Philadelphia, which is actually only used of love between believers in the New Testament. It's literally brotherly love, and that should characterize our relationships. And Peter reminds us that the word of God lives and abides forever. It doesn't merely last forever, but it's a living word. Hebrews tells us that it's living and active. The words of any other book remain on the page, but God's word changes lives because it's fully inspired by the Holy Spirit. Our Bible is 66 books, 1,118 chapters, 774,746 verses, 3,500,034 words, and each one is inspired by God's spirit. God's word never becomes outdated. It's never redundant, but it's always alive, fresh and eternal. But how much do we value it? How much do we live by it? God's word is of inestimable value and we must treasure it. By contrast, we read in verses 24 to 25 that all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flowers, its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. God has always existed in undiminished power from eternity past, and he will continue as such for eternity future. His word will uh, con continue with its same power for all eternity. And I have no doubt that we will continue in, in heaven to discover new things in his word forever. But we, on the other hand, in our humanity are so transient that Peter compares us to grass or to wild flowers. A flower-filled meadow looks lovely, but its beauty soon passes as the flowers die and the grass withers. It's not just our lives, but our achievements are so fleeting in comparison with eternity. And without God, that can seem meaningless. So many people despair of the meaning to life. And it's not helped by the fact that our secular education teaches our children that they are little more than developed pond scum. But having a living relationship with the eternal God gives purpose in life. And it's good to remember our mortality because that drives us to the foot of the cross.
where we find an immortal life. Our years on this earth are so brief in comparison with eternity. So surely it's worth every effort now to live and serve God while we have life in our bodies. Our whole eternal future will be impacted on how we live now. Yes, of course, we're saved. We're eternally secure for our future. But do we really want to miss out on rewards that in the next life for the sake of living carnally for ourselves now? Our salvation cost God so very much. And it's our privilege to give him our full allegiance and our love in return. And knowing the brevity of this life and the eternity that follows it, surely that should enhance our commitment to evangelism and witnessing as well. An eternity of torment is not something that we wish on anyone. And we have a rescue package set out in God's word. In this passage today, we've seen some wonderful things. And Peter would urge us to be alert, aware of the battle that we're in, sober and diligent to be available to God to serve him as he directs. The enemy has been all too successful in lulling many Christians to sleep so that they're just passengers or just consumers in church rather than disciples and soldiers for Christ. The time is short. The world is getting darker, just as Jesus said it would. So let's be on fire for him to be the people that he calls us to be and all for his glory. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for the beauty of this passage, for the, the, oh, the, the preciousness of our salvation, for the, the perfection of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ that he fulfilled everything he needed to be, that he is, he was, always will be perfect, blameless, spotless. But thank you for the challenge this morning as well, that we are to live for you. We are to put away the things of the world and serve you. Lord, would you motivate us to do that? Would you put your Holy, <coughs> Holy Spirit within us afresh? that we would live for you. We would shine with your light in a dying world. For your glory we ask it, in Jesus' name. Amen.